0: Reverend Kenzo is our district superintendent for the St. Lawrence district here at the Christian Mission Alliance. And we have enjoyed your ministry, Reverend Kenzo. And it's such a privilege to have you here ministering to us. Let's now pray before we go to the word of God. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we've been praying, we come to you in all humility. Knowing that we don't deserve it. We don't even deserve to call you God and let alone to call you Father. We don't deserve to stand before you. Father, we don't. And yet, we also know that in your grace and your, and your mercy, you are inviting us. Come, you say. Come to me, all of you who are wearied and heavy burdened. Come. So we come in this manner, Father, seeking help from you, seeking comfort from you, seeking healing from you. Oh, Father, I remember right now an incident in Scripture when Jesus spoke words that many disciples felt were hard, heavy, and some just left. And when Jesus turned to the remaining disciples, he asked them why they did not leave. Aren't you leaving? And Peter said, what is true for us? Oh Lord, where else can we go? You have the word of life. That's why we come to you. Give us that word of life this morning. Speak to your people. Minister to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother and sister, as you can understand, this is a hard moment for me. It's a a task that is difficult to fulfill. And yet we come before you, as I said, not in a position of authority, not in a position of Pride, but honestly, in a position of humility. Brokenness. I am broken. And as I had been thinking about what word I would bring to you, to be honest, I struggled more than usual. I struggled. Which word to bring to God's people? Which word to bring to God's people? And I have to tell you from the to go that I have no new word to bring to you but a reminder. The Lord kept remind, telling me, remind the people of God that we are in a spiritual battle. It may seem simplistic, but it is profound. We need to be reminded that we are in a spiritual battle. As a church, we are in a spiritual battle. As individuals, we are in a spiritual battle. And the moment we forget that we are in a spiritual battle, we lose it. We lose it. Brothers and sisters, as we go through this, my prayer is that we'll focus in the reality of our context the spiritual battle, and that we'll focus on Jesus who will win the victory for us. To be honest, I was already encouraged because I went into the prayer moment late, and just as I walked in, the brother who was praying was praying, saying exactly what I'm saying here, that we are in a spiritual warfare. And then, as we were worshiping here, thank you again, worship uh, team, How many times we're saying the victory belongs to the Lord? And that's the simple truth. Now, I'm basing my message this morning on the text of Scripture that is in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. What is interesting here? When you take this teaching, the text of Matthew chapter 6, and you compare it to other texts where uh, the same uh, prayer is reported as Jesus is teaching his disciples, you see that in the context of uh, Matthew, Matthew puts this uh, teaching moment on Jesus' part in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount or the Mountain, the man teaching that Jesus is giving his people that there is a new order that has come with Jesus coming, there is a new dispensation. You have heard, but I tell you. And the reality that Jesus is teaching his his disciples is that in this new order, he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And in order to fulfill the law, the requirements for people in the kingdom of God, people in the new kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate, the requirement is to go beyond The extra mile. You have heard that hate your enemies, love you, those who love you, but I tell you, if you love only those who love you, what extra thing are you doing there? Even, you know, uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, they do the same. But I tell you, it's when you love those, actually, literally, there, those who are not lovable. It's in this that your father is glorified. Then he goes on to give other practical things. It's the same thing going beyond. When you are giving something to the poor, Jesus has a teaching there. Let what your right arm is doing not be known by your left arm. So, when you pray, don't do what we see with, or don't pray like the Pharisees. And he says, their desire is to be seen. But when you pray, go into the secret confine. Pray your Father in secret. And your Father who hears in secret will respond in secret. When you fast, don't show off that you are fasting, and so on. That is the large context. And he goes on to say, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. In other words, he's giving already two basic teachings here. The only thing that is new, the what is radical, what is the revolutionary in the new dispensation, that now we can address ourselves to God, the creator of heaven and earth, as Father. All the way up to this point, it's Jesus and Jesus only who is calling God Father. Oh yes, in the Old Testament, Israel as a nation could call God Father, but not individuals. But here we have Jesus telling his disciples, you heard me call God Father, address God as Father. You now, from now on, you can do the same. He is Father to you. He is Father to you. He is Father to me. He is Father. Abba Father. And again, this prayer is telling us when we say, hallowed be your name, it's telling us that any prayer must have one and only one ultimate God, the glory of God. That God is glorified. Any spiritual life must have one and one goal only that God will be glorified. Any church life should have one and only one goal, goal that God will be glorified. In the reformed tradition, the Westminster Confession of Faith, after the catechism asked a question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is simple. The chief end of man, man meaning human beings, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's correct. How Lord be your name. We have to seek God's glory at all costs and pray God's on to tell us that God is glorified when His kingdom. It becomes manifest when his will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. No hindrance. His will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. God is glorified when we forgive those who who have trespassed against us because it's at that moment that God forgives us our own debts. But you see, we are talking about uh, things that are exalted here. But in the same prayer, as if Jesus takes us into the heavenly realm to see what glorify God's name, how God's name is allowed or glorified, And all of a sudden, when we get to petition six, he brings us back to earth. Lead us not into temptation. Sixth petition. We are in the heavenly realm. We can call God Father. And yet, temptation is a reality in people's lives. Oh, I remember, as a pastor in Africa... One of my elders, godly man, everybody respected him. And his wife passes on. He was broken. His wife of 50 years, he was heartbroken. And as we were preparing the funeral, he asked me if he could say a word. I said, you don't have to. Just sit back, let us minister to you. And he insisted. He wanted to talk. I said, sure. So he came and did a great tribute for his wife. But one thing, he kept saying, since we got married, my wife and I, we like the same food. Since we got married, never have had we argued. Since we got married, never had we had any disagreement. I went down, hugged him, said, brother, I think it's enough. You can now sit down. <laughs> Because that is not good marriage. Good marriage, you fight. Good marriage, you get into temptation. Good marriage, you get into tension. But the difference is that you know how to settle your disputes. That's the difference. Good Christian life is not the absence of temptation. It's not the absence of sin. Sin will be there. The Bible says, "Six Petition, lead us not into temptation, which means that temptation is a reality. Yes. Sisters, if your man tells you that because he's married to you, he has never been tempted by the sight of other women, he has a problem. Temptation is a reality. So Jesus said, pray to God. Lead us not into temptation. And then the clincher. Petition number seven. Actually, Martin Luther, the reformer, said that this is the summary of the whole prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, when we look at the teachings that are going around even in the church, there are some common deceptions about the devil. Some will tell you that the devil does not exist. It's a myth. Watch out. Others will tell you that every Uh, The devil is everywhere and in everything. That's Africa. Everything, even a tree that falls, is the devil. (laughs) Food that is too salty is the devil. Everything is the devil. That is also a mistake. And some, and mostly that's where we find ourselves, some do believe that the devil is there, (laughs) but not for me. That is also a mistake. The Bible tells us that the devil is a reality. We can see that in light of Jesus' life and ministry. We see that in Jesus' temptation in the desert. As soon as he got off the waters of baptism, he was led to the desert to be tempted, and scripture says, by the devil. It's a reality. He was tempted in Gethsemane. As he was sweating blood, the devil wanted to distract him from the goal of dying for our sins. If Jesus was tempted, you will be tempted. If the devil was a reality for Jesus, it will be a reality for you and for me too. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 13 part B deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. The Christian life is not a safe harbor secure from storms and struggles. Those who are members of this promised kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate are with Christ at war against the devil one. Being a Christian is not safe. It's not secure. I remember not long ago at Oasis, the church I attend, uh, Martin Bellrose came to preach to us And his title was uh, the Uncomfortable Church. Every church should be uncomfortable. Every church member should be uncomfortable. It's a reality. The reality of the devil can also be seen in Christian life. Jesus prayed for our protection from the evil one. John chapter 17 verse 15. What Jesus said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's Jesus. Or or again, when he tells Peter how he prayed for him. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have Prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. I prayed for you. Jesus warned his disciples watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Peter understood the message. And when it came to his turn in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he tells us, be alert and of sober mind. You enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Paul instructs Christians to put on the full arm of God. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 14. We know the text. Be strong, he says, in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers Of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, he repeats, put on the full armor of God. As that when, so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground. And very beautiful text. And after you have taken everything So that you can also stand firm. Scripture. So we cannot take it lightly. We are involved, engaged in warfare, spiritual battle. How often salvation is presented to us as some sort of helpful solution to everything uh, that ails us. Lonely come to Jesus and get that fixed. Alcoholic, come to Jesus and be delivered of your addiction. Confused, join the church and find all the answers. In such a presentation of the gospel, salvation becomes a simple solution to all your problems, the way to fix what ails you. But this petition... In which we ask for deliverance and we ask for help in terms of trial, reminds us that salvation in Christ is a journey. It's a difficult journey, a drama. Praying this prayer is the beginning of the problem that would not have been there had we not. Made Christ, and enlisted with Christ. Because we are God's children, we pray deliver us. The moment you become connected with God, the enemy stands up because the devil becomes your enemy. So we have this problem because we belong to God. The forces of evil do not relinquish the territory without a fight and being saved. God's newly won territory is you. You become a virtual back battleground where the living God fights the powers. So, this prayer is a bit like waging a war. Waging a war. The reality of Christian life is that time and again are being fully armed fully equipped, duly filled with the Holy Spirit may not be enough. The devil is an enemy too strong for us. That's why we appeal to God. That's why we appeal to God, deliver us. The good news is that in reality, God is our deliverer. God is our deliverer. When we say deliver us from the evil one, yes, it is a cry of desperation. It shows that we cannot on our own. It shows that we've reached rock bottom. It shows that we know that we lost. But it's also a cry of humility. Knowing that on our own, within ourselves, we don't have the resources that we need. We need God. We need God. And when we read words like save, trial, deliver, these are words that translate a crisis when we find ourselves in a crisis as individuals, as church community or faith community, we will go through crises. But the same words, save, deliver, trials, they remind us that we have help. Help is on hand. And this help comes from above. It comes from the one who is Father. Jesus, when he entered into Jerusalem, people cried out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. These people were desperate. They tried everything they could to get rid of the Roman uh, power, but they could not. When they saw Jesus, they cried to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Brothers and sisters, we as a church need to be reminded that every day, every day, every moment, every hour, we need to cry out to God, save us. Save us. Because the moment we stop looking at God for salvation, we begin to to trust ourselves, our own strength, our own strategies, our own administration, our own whatever you have. Save us. Deliver us. Same thing in our own spiritual lives, personally. If you don't go down your knees to plead for God's mercy constantly, You become puffed up. You become arrogant. And you're ready for a big fall. It's a cry of humility. Oh, it's true. It is true. That we know that to say, deliver us from the evil one is also to elevate God. Put God where God belongs. To crown God as king. Because the prayer starts, our father who art where? In heaven above everything. A position of authority above everything. From which space he rules everything it appeals to God's kingdom. As I said, the whole general context is about God's kingdom that has come because of Jesus' presence. It is an expression, therefore, of faith in God, who is Father in heaven. But it is also true that it's not wrong for Christians to despair, for Christians to uh, lament. And I have to say that this is probably one of the aspects that we have forgotten in our Christian life. We believe that to be victorious spiritually is not to struggle, is at least to put up a face of one who is conquering, gaining victory everywhere. But that's not what we see in scripture. When we read uh, the Old Testament, we see a whole tradition that is mostly expressed in the Psalms. They call them the Psalms of lament. These Psalms were believers. Believers would ask God, oh Lord, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Because you need to make sure that God is there, and when He's not there, plead for His presence. Beg for His presence. One of my favorite Psalms, and Jesus quotes it at the cross, is Psalm 22. And in this Psalm 22, we have an echo of this question that I've mentioned here Where is God? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And in the heat of the battle, the believer in, this, in the Psalms of lament feels desperate, abandoned by the Lord. And here, songs of praise, because you have also songs of praise. Songs of praise turn into songs of accusation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Psalm 22. But look at the conclusion. When you read the end of the psalm, of this particular psalm, what he says, I am but a worm, not a man. Humility. I am am but a worm, not a man. In fact, I'm being scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insult, shaking their heads. He puts his trust in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. He's being mocked. Brothers and sisters, church should not be afraid of mockery. A Christian should not be afraid of mockery. This is very difficult place to be in, but it's a space of growth. It's a space of deliverance. It's a space where Indeed, theology ceases to work. The believers is in the Psalms knows that God is his God. He still says, my God, even as he lament, as he complains, he says, my God, my God. He knows that God's enthronement as the Holy One is a fact. He knows that God is the one Israel praises. But more importantly, he also knows that when his ancestors, Israel, put their trust in God, he delivered them. He delivered them. When they cried out to him, they were saved. They were not put to shame. So he says, as for me, as for me, my trust Will be in God. As for me. What would I do? Or what did he do? He affirms his trust in God. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb. You have been my God. He renews his appeal for rescue. Do not. Be far from me, I plead with you, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. That's the psalmist. Then he goes on to review the challenges surrounding him, bulls, roaring lions, dogs, and so on. What he does, he recognizes still his weakness. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up and my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. So he appeals again to, to God. Do not be far from me. Deliver me. Rescue me. Save me. That leads him to the surprising conclusion of one who is lamenting but yet his lament has been drawn to God. What he said at the end of Will give I give myself the liberty to read the whole thing. His conclusion: I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Revere him, all you descendants of of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the, the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek, uh, those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. So you see, he's not only praising God for himself, but he's inviting the just ones to praise God. Because God is still on his seat. God is still on, uh, you know, uh, in heaven above everything. God is still king. No matter what we go through as a church, God is still king. No matter what you go through as, in, as an individual, God is still king. And we need to praise him. We need to praise him. How does it end? We are in a war where God battles with the powers of, against the powers of evil. Though we know for sure how the war will end, the cross made clear that God's purpose for creation will not be defeated. God's purpose for his church will not be defeated. No matter what challenges we face, God's purpose will not be defeated. That's what scripture says. If God is for us, who is against us? We don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. Knowing that, we have patience in the midst of struggle. Knowing that, we live in God's good time we can take time. In praying to God to deliver us from evil, we acknowledge that God is greater than any foe of God. The power of evil must be admitted, recognized, and taken seriously, but not exalted, because God alone is exalted, Evil is a threatening power, but it is defeated power. Though the battle rages, we know who has won the war. When we pray for deliverance from the evil one, we acknowledge that we have not the resources on our own to resist the evil. The Lord's prayer is an appeal to be honest. The power's that he is battling are serious, powerful, but there are powers that are defeated. In our weakness, we reach out, and there there is, the, the, uh, there there is deliverance. The battle belongs to the Lord, we sing. The battle belongs to the Lord. As a church, we are, you are in a battle, but the battle belongs to God. Our challenge as a church is that we choose camp. Do we side with God to battle evil or we choose the other camp to fight God and his purposes? Psalm 1 reminds us that the source of happiness, of blessing, is not to sit in the company of mockers. The Bible reminds us that as we are engaged in this battle, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is, tr- tr- is truth, is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, those should be the object of our thoughts. The battle belongs to the Lord. May God strengthen us in our resolve, in our recognition that we are in a battle that he won for us. Amen.